As I've frequently said, as we've been walking through some psalms this um, past couple of months here, the psalms represent the realities of life in the context of faith. Just as life ebbs and flows with joys and sorrows, excitements and disappointment, disappointments, highs and lows, so the psalms show us the response of a believer to the ever-changing realities of life. If the Psalms were written by merely religious zealots whose desire was to paint the best picture of their lives, of their faith, of their God, then the Psalms would be very different. It would perhaps mirror the fabricated reality of many on social media today. Much of what you see nowadays on social media is smiling faces, realized dreams, trips taken to exotic places, fun experiences without the reality of the difficulties of life. So much so that there are cautions that are given out, particularly to the young, not to be drawn away by what appears to be the perfect life envisioned by many of these quote-unquote influencers to the degree that that's what many seek. They seek the perfect life. They seek a life free from difficulty, free from pain, because that's the ideal. That's not reality. The word of God is real. The Psalms are real. They were written by real people who experienced life at times through struggle and at times with joy. And this morning we're faced with a psalm that tells the story of a godly man who was legitimately tempted to envy the wicked. I think that's something we can all relate to. Again, we've all seen the posts. We've heard people telling their story, the things they've done, the things they've seen, the places they've gone, experiences, pleasures, things that you know, maybe on the one hand, don't befit a life of faith, but things that seem good if only by virtue of the enjoyment that others have in them, so much so that you may be tempted to think, how can that be a bad thing? Well, the Psalms teach us in Psalm 73 about envying the wicked, and it gives us some truths that we hold on to to remind ourselves when we are tempted to envy the wicked, and I think that'll be instructive for us this morning. So if you haven't, go ahead and turn to Psalm 73, I'll read the whole text, we'll pray, and then we'll walk through together. Psalm 73, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. 
All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom am I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Father, thank you for your word, your word which sanctifies us as Jesus prayed. I pray that you would sanctify us this morning, each each person here under the sound of my voice, that you would sanctify our hearts and minds through your word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, there are five truths to consider to combat temptation to envy the wicked. Five truths to remember when we're tempted to envy the wicked. First, verse 1. God does the greatest good to his people. That's a statement of fact that we begin with in this psalm. Second, the wicked do appear to have the greatest life now. That's the longest section in verses 2 through 16. Third, God is the wicked's greatest enemy. That's in verses 17 through 20. Fourth, envy can be my greatest folly. That's in verses 21 through 22. And fifth, God is always my greatest good. It's in verses 23 through 26. God does the greatest good to his people. The wicked do appear to have the greatest life now. God is the wicked's greatest enemy. Envy can be my greatest folly. And God is always my greatest good. Well, let's look at the first point. God does the greatest good to his people. That's verse one again. Surely... God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This surely indicates that this is a matter of fact in Asaph's mind. Some commentators have indicated that this may have been an early proverbial saying. In other words, this was something common in the vernacular of the believers of Asaph's day. It would be akin to our saying, God is good all the time and all the time God is good. Or in Easter, we may say he is risen. And we may respond with, he is risen indeed. Well, this would have been somewhat of a proverbial statement in Asaph's day. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are the pure in heart. The first half of the line gives us the big idea. God is good. 
All believers everywhere can attest to this fact. All believers everywhere should give a hearty amen. And we would all confess the same. God is good. God is good to his people. He was good to Israel, and yes, he is good to the church. When we get to the second part of that verse, Asaph is not saying here that Israel is always pure in heart. He's not saying that the people of God are always and thoroughly pure in heart. He's saying that generally Israel are those who are the pure in heart. And that has more to do with their relationship with God than anything else. They are the people of God. They have the commandments. They have the promises. They have the history with God. Above all other men, they are blessed of the Lord. And it is their relationship with him that gives them this designation as the pure in heart. As for them, so for the church. We are the people of God. We have the testimony of the people of God who've gone on before us. We have the testimony of Jesus himself and those who are with him. We have the word of God completed. We have the gospel in the word of God. We have the salvation that comes through hearing the word of God, through faith in Jesus himself. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit, sanctification, conviction, empowerment, the testimony of the universal church, even the local church and the blessing of fellowship that we enjoy. We are the pure in heart of our day. And blessed are we for God is good to us. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1 that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. But again, this is a proverbial saying, God is good to his people. Now, usually when we say he is good, what we mean is that he does good to his people. He brings good things. He brings good circumstances. He is good to us, and ultimately he will do the greatest good to us as he confirms our relationship and ushers in the kingdom. Asaph and the people of God in his day believe that. We believe that and we confess that. But if that is true, then the question is, why do the wicked prosper? That brings us to the second truth. The wicked appear to have the greatest life now. That's in verses 2 through 16. I won't read that section again because we just read it. But that's his point as we look at this next section. The wicked do appear to have the greatest life now. That's what it seems like, doesn't it? We've all probably thought that from time to time. Asaph was just honest enough to admit it. Look at verses 2 and 3. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says in verse 2 to his brethren, Guys, I almost messed up big time. My feet came close to stumbling. My steps were pulled out from under me. I lost my footing and nearly came crashing down. The pictures of a rocky uphill climb, you know, the kind of uphill climb you see in the movies where the protagonist has to make it to the top, but the rock is slippery. He slips, his foot gives way. He almost falls to his death. Maybe he's left hanging on the side of the cliff by his fingertips. Asaph said, that was me. I was hanging on for dear life. Well, what was it that shook him? What caused him to stumble? Verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That line is packed with meaning. What shook him was his observation of those who were arrogant, those who were wicked in their apparent prosperity in life. And in the following verses, he explains both what he means by their prosperity and by what he means by their arrogance or their wickedness. The point is that these arrogant or wicked individuals are prospering 
and Asaph's spiritual footing has been swept out from under him. He's been living under the assumption that verse 1 is true, standing on the solid ground of that truth that God is good to Israel, to those of the pure in heart. That proverbial saying has governed his whole outlook on the relationship between God and his people. God does good to those who are upright. God blesses his people. And if that's true, then certainly God wouldn't do good to the wicked, right? But what Asaph sees when he looks around is that he sees arrogant, wicked people prospering in their wickedness, and he just can't believe it. His faith in this truth that God is good to his people, to the pure in heart, is shaken. More than that, more than that his faith in this truth is shaken, Asaph is beginning to spiral down into a bit of an abyss. Not only does he see something different than what he believes to be true, but he's also beginning to envy the wicked for it. And you see the progression there, right? The moment we lose sight of the truth of God, the moment we lose faith in the promises of God, what inevitably follows is the need to fill the vacuum of our gaze and our attention. And it will always be filled with the temptation to flirt with, indulge in, to gaze at, or to love wickedness. That's the only logical step. And that sin will always, as someone once said, take us further than we want to go, keep us longer than we want to stay, and cost us more than we were willing to pay. What he sees as he's thrust further down the spiral of indulging the envy of the wicked. You can see Asaph sitting back and watching these arrogant ones, these wicked ones and their wickedness with disgust and just seething with envy. Well, he observes six things about the wicked in verses four through 12. Verse four, he observes that they seem to have no want, no lack in their prosperity. Verse four, he says, there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. Hebrew is a very concrete language And what he means by this whole idea of there being no pain is not that they're immune to painful death, but rather the idea is that there's no pain in their death because they seem to be fully satisfied with life. And their satisfaction with life is envisioned by their bodies growing fat. He's using that kind of an illustration of the way their life seems to be developing. They're fat, they're plump because they have no want, no lack in their life. Everything is being provided for them. So when they breathe their last breath, their bodies are fully satisfied and they lack nothing. Second, he says, they believe they have no human equal in their prosperity, verses 5 and 6. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. He says they don't face the same troubles as us normal folks, and that tends to change their outlook on life. You ever have that one friend who complains about money that they blew on the stock market? Or they complain about the third or fourth vehicle in the family? Or like one of my customers back in the day when I used to work at a bank used to complain about a $50,000 tuition bill for one of his kids that he could easily pay. You listen to people like that and you think they really just don't get it. They don't really know what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck. They don't know what it's like to struggle, to scrape together what you can in order to make ends meet. Maybe they've been there, but they've kind of vowed never to return again once they reached some measure of success. And now their whole outlook on life has changed. 
Again, listen to the imagery of this text. Pride is their necklace. They wear pride around them like a gaudy, well-decorated necklace. That's what you see when you see them. They have it good and everyone else has to know that they have it good. You should see from this person that they have it so good that they should get whatever it is that they want. And when they don't get what they want, he says, not only is pride their necklace, but the garment of violence covers them. They become violent, maybe physically, maybe verbally, when they don't get what they want simply because they feel like they can. Right? Third observation. These people live these fat, swollen, well-satisfied lives. They wear pride as their necklace. Third observation, the wicked seem to have no boundaries in their prosperity. Verse 7, their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. The pride of having it all, the pride of knowing that you have more than others, the pride of feeling good and looking down upon others in their relative poverty, even the pride that leads to a violent demand of whatever they need, they feel like they need, It feeds their lust to the degree that there's nothing they wouldn't seek. There's nothing they wouldn't do. Whatever their heart or mind conceives of, that's what they pursue. That's what's envisioned here. Their eye bulges from fatness. The second half of the line helps us to understand that he's not speaking of physical bulging. He's not talking about their physical eye. But it's being used poetically. Their eye swells from what it sees and desires, what it imagines. Most of us are limited by time and opportunity and and resources. But as Asaph is considering the wicked, he says there's nothing limiting them. Now, again, the primary reference for Asaph are those who are materially wealthy. He's looking at those who are materially wealthy and their wealth pursuing whatever they want. See a car, go and get it. See a house, go and get it. A small business you like, buy it from the owner. Money is no object. Don't take no for an answer. Talk to people however you want and get whatever you want from them because you have the money and the resources to do it and everyone knows it. Demand what you want and go and get it. But perhaps we can also see this attitude in some of the moral revisionists of our day who are leading the moral revolution. The list of letters being added to the sexual revolution is astounding. It used to just be LGBTQ, but now it's LGBTQ plus. And the plus is really never ending. And then there's all the discussion of my preferred gender pronouns demanding that others refer to them in a way other than what is normal or natural. Whatever they want, whatever they desire, everyone must consent or else. Fourth observation, they have no compassion in their prosperity. Verse 8, they mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. This observation follows what preceded it. There's nothing to restrain their wickedness, nothing to restrain their pride. They now sit and mock those who are oppressed, those who are downtrodden. They ridicule. They say, those people are just lazy. Those people just don't work hard enough. Those people are just not good enough. Well, it may be true that 
whoever that those people are are lazy and not hard workers, but the wicked have no legitimate knowledge of the character of those who they speak of in that way. They simply assume these things because their pride and prosperity has gotten them to a certain measure of success. The arrogant act this way as a result of their pride. Fifth, they have no God-honoring humility in their prosperity. Verses 9 through 11. No God-honoring humility. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Again, their thoughts of themselves continue to swell. Their advantage over their fellow man continues to advance. Their ability to procure whatever their heart desires increases. Their disdain for heaven and God above also rises. He says they set their mouth against the heaven and their tongue parades throughout the earth. They're speaking their wickedness against heaven, against God above. Verse 11 fills us in on what they're saying. How does God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Now, these are not true believers. These are those who make a mockery of God, the idea of God, the truth of God, and particularly the God of the Bible. He is the most high God, but for them, he knows nothing. And as it says again in verse 9, they spread their disdain for God throughout the whole earth. They are missionaries for atheism. Perhaps they do not have a full-fledged theology of atheism as we know it from our apologetics text, but in their hearts, they disdain and mock the reality of God. They don't need him. They have their wealth. They're captains of their own destiny. They've built their own lives. They control the wind and the rudder. Verse 10, it says their own people, their own atheistic disciples drink up this theology deeply. They indulge in it. They revel in it. And they end up propagating it themselves. Again, these are all observations that Asaph is making about the wicked verse six is kind of a summary or the sixth point is kind of a summary statement of verse 12 he says behold these are the wicked and always at ease they have increased in wealth this observation is asaph at the height of his frustration the height of his bitterness the height of his envy as he's looking out at the wicked prospering in their wickedness the wicked really do appear to have the greatest life now. They always get whatever they want. It always comes so easily to them. No one opposes them. You ever sit back and wonder yourself, why does such and such get to be so prosperous? Why do they get to have all that wealth? Why are we having conversations about a contract of, you know, I don't know, $180 billion of guaranteed money for a quarterback, a dude who runs around in a uniform and throws a ball to other guys, things that we used to do outside in a park with just the neighborhood kids. This dude is doing it and getting millions of dollars for it and complaining that he's getting this many million as opposed to this many hundred million. Why are we talking about that? Why do they, these people get to go through life without chronic health issues or the illness that plagues me? Why are they more liked by everyone else? Why are they further advanced in their career? Why do they, why do I have to work outside of my home to make ends meet when they can afford a maid? Why do they get to be raised by both parents when I only had one? Why do they get to have their loved one still around when mine is gone? And the list goes on and on. 
the wicked appear to have the greatest life now. And look at me. Look at verses 13 through 16. I'm trying to live by the Lord, and I don't have such a great life. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Asaph began this psalm with a surely. He was sure, he was certain that this saying was right God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart he's taken some time to think about it and reflect on what he sees in reality and now he's not so sure about that statement now in this moment what he seems more sure about is something else when I look around at my life I've kept my heart pure but God has not been so good to me this is surely not the greatest life in vain I have kept my heart pure he says In vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. I've been trying to do what is right. I've been striving for what is good. I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm a worship leader in the sanctuary of God. I'm an Israelite, one who is pure in heart. God should be giving me the best life now, but I don't see that. We may be tempted at times in our lives to think that way, but let me ask you, have you kept your heart pure? Maybe you feel like you deserve more from God and you need more from God and you deserve this and you deserve that. Well, have you kept your heart pure? Have you labored for him? Have you washed your hands in innocence? One of the main arguments that men have against the existence of God and one of the main complaints that men have who believe that God exists and that he simply is not good is that we deserve so much better. And again, sometimes we think that. We think that we deserve to get good things in life, and so we complain when things are not good. We often seek for good and complain or grow bitter and angry when we don't receive good because we believe that we deserve good things. But the reality of the gospel is that we don't deserve good things. And that we shouldn't be complaining when we don't get get good things. We should be rejoicing when we do get good things. And we should be scratching our heads and wondering, why in the world does God give me anything good? The world says, I deserve the best. The gospel says the exact opposite of that. The world says, I deserve the best. I demand the best. The gospel says, you deserve the worst. And if God gives you anything good, you should be thankful for it. Again, Asaph is saying in this text, when I look at my life, I've kept my heart pure, but it doesn't appear that God is as good to me as those who do not keep their hearts pure. I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. I try to do what's right, but whenever I mess up, all I get is chastisement. I feel like I'm being punished all day long. You ever go through one of those seasons of life where you feel as though you're trying to do right? Maybe you slip up one little time and and God is all over you. And when you're in the thick of it, in the thick of the difficulties of life, you're tempted to think that God is against you. And maybe you think you can't ever get anything right. Maybe you think you can't ever please him at all. He's he's chastening you every single day, all day long. You're wondering why in the world is this happening? I remember one particular season of our life when I was in seminary trying to work on my degree. We were serving in ministry at our church. One particular week I was studying for school, 
for my classes, preparing to preach on a Sunday, preparing to receive our mother into our home after she was recovering from a surgery. We had two kids with strep throat. <laughs> I think it was strep throat and something else. My wife is not feeling well, and then our water heater broke and completely flooded our apartment. That week that I was studying for seminary, preparing to preach, preparing to get ready for my mom to come and stay with us, and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Lord, what is happening right now? Like, these are all good things, right? Like, I'm trying to do good things, but this is just not right. This is not cool. I remember, in fact, staying up all, pretty much all Saturday night because of all of the craziness that was happening that week, staying up all Saturday night to finish my sermon. And my family had gone to my wife's parents, and so they were staying there, and I was staying in the house with the busted water heater and the flooded uh, bedroom floors, and it was an exciting time. But I was reminded that there are some things that, you know, we just need to, there are certain truths that we need to hold on to during that time that help to keep us grounded. When we're tempted to feel like the Lord is punishing us or chastening us or not giving us what we need, we are to remember that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1, right? God is not punishing you. He'd never punish you for anything. As a believer, he does chasten his children, but those who are his children, he chastens in love because he desires to see righteousness in them. The difficulties that you have in your life, believer, are not because God is punishing you. It's not even necessarily because there's something wrong. The difficulties that you have in your life are because God desires to work out righteousness in your life. And the only way he's going to work out righteousness in your life is that you go through the fires of his chastening hand. God refines his children through suffering, not through ease. Again, Asaph says, I go through life looking at the world around me and seeing the prosperity of the wicked. I scratch my head and wonder, why not me? I've kept my heart pure. I've washed my hands in innocence. I'm seeking to do what is right, and yet all I get is grief. This is not the best life. The wicked seem to have the best life. He has a moment of sanity in verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He says, you know, that was just crazy talk. I know these things are not true. I know that God is good to his people, but verse 15, Verse 16, he says, this whole thing is still troublesome in my sight. Well, how does he turn it around? And that's our next point. God is the wicked's greatest enemy. He has to realize something. He has to come to remember something about the wicked. Verses 17 through 20, until I came into the sanctuary, then I perceived their end. Surely thou dost, you do put them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. He said, until I came to the sanctuary, then I perceived their end. And this is clearly the turning point in Asaph's thinking. As he's confessing the season of life where he came close to slipping in his own words, he remembers this point when, in, when his thinking was turned around. He says, it is until I came again to the sanctuary of God. And why is fellowship so important? We've talked about this many times. 
Why is gathering together with believers so necessary for the life of the faithful? It's for this reason. Because in the gathering together of believers, we're brought out of the fog, the stupor that we sometimes encounter when we linger long in the world. As we're enveloped by the life, breath, lusts, pleasures, pains, thoughts, attitudes of the world, the fellowship of believers is a safe haven for the people of God. It is a safe haven for his elect. In Hebrews chapter 10, we've talked about this passage often. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need to gather together so that we might encourage one another. And that's what Asaph needed. The issue is not about a loss of salvation, but rather a loss of encouragement. Asaph needed encouragement to come out of the stupor, out of the downward spiral of depression that he had entered into. And it was in the presence of God and in the company of his people that Asaph was reminded of this truth. You know, in the presence of God and the company of his people were reminded of those things that I mentioned earlier, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that God does give us chastisement in order to purify us, in order to strengthen us. A reminder that Asaph points out in verses 18 through 20 is that vengeance is the Lord and that vengeance is what God has in store for the wicked. Though they appear to be prospering today, they are indeed on a slippery slope. Once the patience of God is up, he will indeed be aroused to, as he says, sweep them away by sudden terrors. He will despise their form. Though they seem to prosper now, they will say someday soon be utterly cast down. They may appear to have their best life now. That's only because tomorrow is the day of judgment. God will require their soul. Asaph said, I didn't remember this. Until I came into the sanctuary, God's people. James Montgomery Boyce said this, Worship puts God at the center of our vision. It is vitally important because it is only when God is at the center of our vision that we see things as they really are. We will be distracted by many things in life. The only thing that will rightly orient us to reality, to true reality, is God. God is the center of true reality. Not the things that we see happening around us, not the difficulties that we endure, as overwhelming as those things may be, God is the center of reality for his people, for all people. God is the wicked's greatest enemy. This brings us to point number five. Envy can be my greatest folly. In Asaph's mind, the light has just come back on. His mind has once again been illuminated. Looking back on the stupor, the spiritual slumber of his, the spiritual destructive downward spiral into envy of the wicked, it was brought to a halt when he was made to gaze long at the goodness of God in the sanctuary among his people. And now he's able to think better about himself even. Verses 21 and 22. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. He says, when I was bitter and pierced, when I was indulging in envy, I was senseless and ignorant like a beast before you. He says, I was a fool. I was a fool to look at them. I was a fool to envy them. So too are we fools when we allow ourselves to look upon someone else with envy when we really have no idea where they're coming from or where they're going. And we don't know what it's going to cost them in the end, right? Right? 
I think about this sometimes, and I may have used this analogy before, but sometimes when I run, I try to, I haven't been running as faithfully as I ought to, <laughs> but when I was running more consistently, sometimes I would look around at different people who are running along the track, and you know, you see the, the little old lady who's like outpacing you, um, and you start to weep a little inside. Um, but the reality is that you never know what what people's training regimen is, right? Like, I don't know how long she's been running. She's probably been running longer than I've been alive. So her body's more conditioned to it. I don't know what training regimen she's on. She may be on a completely different training regimen than I'm on. But I'm looking around at her, and I'm thinking immediately, oh, I should be there. But that's not true. Because what I'm working on and what she's working on may be two completely different things. Where she's going in life and where I'm going in life may be two completely different places. That's the folly of envy. Asaph says, I was a fool when I was looking at them and clinging to them. They may be on a path that I simply do not want to follow. Well, again, as we're thinking about how we are sometimes tempted to envy the wicked, we have to remember that God does the greatest good to his people. This is objectively true. God has proven that in his love for us in Christ. We never have to doubt that. Jesus died on the cross to make abundantly clear that he has a greater love for us than anyone else in this world. Second, the wicked may appear to have the greatest life now. When we compare our lives to theirs, it may appear on the outside that way. However, God is the wicked's greatest enemy. That's going to be their end. For all their wickedness, their judgment day is coming. Envy can be my greatest folly. One of the the greatest difficulties that I can have, one of the greatest and easiest ways that I can fall is by envying others, looking at what they have and comparing myself to them instead of orienting myself on the basis of who God is. And that leads us to the fifth point. God is always my greatest good. I mentioned earlier that typically when we say that God is good, what we mean is that he does good. The focus is often on how he provides good things or good circumstances for us, but that's not the sum total of what it means that God is good. What it means that God is good, when we talk about the goodness of God, yes, we do mean the things that he does for us, but ultimately we we mean that he is our greatest good. Look at verses 23 and 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. Afterward, receive me to glory. God is our keeper. Both the ESV and the NASB translate the first word, nevertheless. That really helps to capture the force of what he's saying. I was a senseless and ignorant beast, a mindless brooding animal as I sat and began to envy the wicked. There's nothing redeemable about their life, and yet I indulged in envy over their wickedness. Nevertheless, I am with you. Though I was a fool, I am still with God. You have taken hold of my right hand. Again, that second half further explains the first. I am with you because you have taken hold of my right hand. Again, earlier, Asaph said, I almost slipped. Now we're cued in as to why he didn't fully fall. And he didn't fully fall because he's a great person. He didn't fully fall because of the 10 steps that he took to make sure that he didn't fall away from the faith. He didn't fully fall because... He was kept by the almighty God. 
Jesus said in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. That's one of my favorite passages in the gospel of John because it completely and totally explains the perseverance of the saints. There's no way possible for a person who have put their faith in Jesus to ever fall away because God is the one who holds us. Because the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you, the good shepherd, is the one who holds you in his hand. You will never fall away. You may slip. You may stumble at times. But even in that, his right hand upholds you. That's the point. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, he, Jesus, became to all those who obey him a source of eternal salvation. Hebrews seven twenty five. he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Our brother, our deacon Steve, preached on Jesus saving to the uttermost last week. The believer knows the goodness of God and his ability to keep us away, keep us from stumbling by his almighty hand, by the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. Moreover, look at verse 24. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Not only does he keep us today, but he also guarantees our redemption tomorrow. Asaph says that it is the counsel of the Lord that guides us. And because we are in his counsel, his will, his direction that guides us in life, afterward will be received in glory. We say that God is our greatest good because our, he is our keeper. He keeps us from falling away. We should be allowed to fall away. We should be cast aside. And if it were up to us, that is what would happen. But it's not up to us. It's up to God's almighty hand. And because it's up to his almighty hand, he keeps us, he preserves us, and he will lead us safely to glory. But we also say that God is our greatest good because he is our treasure. Look at the last verses. Whom, I have, whom have I in heaven... But you and besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's verse 25 and 26. By using the language of heaven and earth, Asaph means to signify the totality of creation. To him, there's nothing in the created cosmos besides God. He says, God is my greatest treasure. Even when it comes to the strength of his own life, Asaph knows that his strength will fail him. My heart and my flesh may fail. My own ability to bear up under trial will fail. I will reach the end of my rope. My body will continue to fail. If the Lord tarries, we will all face physical death. That is reality. But God, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is the strength of my heart. He is the strength of my innermost being. He is the one who keeps my soul alive. Without him, apart from him, I would cease to exist. God is my life. He is my portion forever. The term portion is intended to bring to mind that which is of greatest value. In other words, he is my greatest treasure. There's nothing and no one greater than he in the context of my life. What's the most important thing to you? What's your greatest treasure? What do you value above any other thing? Is it your life, your health, your job? What is it for you? Asaph says, for me, my greatest treasure is my God. 
Paul said it this way in Philippians 3, I consider all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Look at these last two verses. The final two verses are a summary statement of all that he's just concluded. Verse 27, for behold, those who are far off from you shall perish. You will put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The wicked may long enjoy materially good things in this life while all the time being infinitely far from the greatest good but they will perish. They will be destroyed. The believer, however, being kept by the mercies of God is being brought near to him. He becomes a refuge to them to the degree that they see no greater good than God himself. He says, the nearness of God is my good. Again, at the beginning of the psalm, Asaph started out with this proverbial saying, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But that proverbial saying was challenged in his own heart. His faith in that statement was shaken by what he saw in the reality of life. But as we come to a close, he moves from talking about the goodness of God in general to the goodness of God to him in particular. The goodness of God for Asaph is finally measured not by the good things that he gets, but by his nearness to his God. All of us have to make that progression. All of us have to take that spiritual leap. Do you view your relationship with God as a function of your visiting church on Sunday? Do you view your relationship with God, your spirituality, as a function of your giving to church? Do you view your relationship with God as a function of how well you fare in life, whether or not God is blessing your ways? Do you view your relationship with God as evidenced by the fact that he is with you, he is near you, he is in you through Jesus Christ? Augustine said this, you stir us so that praising you may bring us joy because you have made us and drawn us to yourself and our heart has no rest until it rests in you. That ought to be our prayer, beloved. Not that we would find good things in life, not that we would find favorable circumstances, favorable health or whatever it might be that we would grow more to know and love the true and living God. That we would draw closer to him. That we would see him as our greatest good. That ought to be our prayer for ourselves. That ought to be our prayer for our children. That ought to be our prayer for our brothers and sisters in Christ. For everyone who's named the name of Christ. That they would draw near to God and see him as our greatest good. That is the end of every word, every prayer, every message that is preached. That we would love God from a pure heart. That we would treasure him above all other things. That ought to be the end of every one of your conversations with one another as you gather together Sunday after Sunday. That ought to be the end of every effort you put into serving the body of Christ that your brother or sister in Christ whom you've committed to, you've covenanted with, comes to know and love Jesus Christ more than anything else in their lives. That's what it means to be a part of a church. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your son, 
Jesus. We thank you for the salvation we have in him. We thank you for eternal life. We thank you, Lord, for the times when we have come close to slipping, when we have allowed our focus and attention to move from you to other people, to other things perhaps, and we have envied those who do not know you, do not trust in you. We're grateful for your preserving hand, for your almighty hand that keeps us. We're grateful for your sustaining hand, your sustaining grace that is at work in us daily. We're grateful for the blessing of our fellowship with one another and the privilege we have of gathering together and encouraging one another with the truth. And Father, we pray that you would make those things true of all of us, that ultimately we would see the nearness of God as our greatest good. We pray this in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.